Hello, everyone. Brian McClintock here. You're listening to The Thin Green Line, which are episodes of the Viticole podcast dealing exclusively with environmental issues surrounding the wine world. You can find those under the TTGL abbreviation in our podcast history. Today's episode is part one of a roundtable discussion on wine and climate change with Dr. Elizabeth Volkovich and winemakers Steve Mathiason and Aaron Jordan. And I got to back up the train a little bit here. I spend a fair amount of time in specifically organic vineyards and why that's relevant as opposed to, let's say, conventionally farmed vines is that with organic farming, a vineyard mine is forced to be more attuned to things like weather and climate. They don't have the safety net of chemical products, so let's say their frequency of connectivity with the land is just more acute. So these are the people I interact with, and these are the people quite literally ranting about climate change nonstop. Everywhere I go, same conversation. So naturally, I went to NASA and interviewed climate scientist Dr. Benjamin Cook for sort of like the cliff notes on global warming, right? Unbeknownst to me, Dr. Cook had independently built out climate change projections on wine grapes in key regions around the world, and his findings were not cool. If you haven't heard those episodes, that could be a good tune-up for today. They're literally directly before this one. But when you're a wine industry professional and a NASA PhD climatologist sits across from you and claims that by 2050, Napa Cabernet and Pinot Noir from Oregon and Burgundy may not be viable options as grape varieties, that is not a good day. I was at the least taken aback and couldn't just let him drop the mic without digging deeper. So here's where we're at. I broke his podcast down into topical segments, mostly California-focused all the sexy things, water issues, fire, drought. It's like a Verdi's Requiem of gloom and doom. And I played these segments for two California winemakers, as mentioned before, Steve Mathiason and Aaron Jordan, in addition to the Harvard plant ecologist who supplied Ben with that phenology data, Lizzie Volkovich. We flew her in on the red eye from Vancouver. Now, Lizzie is definitely the smartest human in any room, but Steve and Aaron, no slouches either. And so really the crux of this dialogue hinges on whether winemakers are underestimating the acceleration of warming and its collateral effects, or if scientists are underestimating the farmer's ability to adapt. And there is a lot that gets unpacked here. I chose Stephen Aaron specifically because very few winemakers in California have as much experience as these two, even less have and still do actively work the land themselves. They speak fluent tractor, but they really could not introduce themselves for shit, so allow me. Steve Mathiason, of his aptly named winery Mathiason Vineyards, has a master's degree in horticulture with an emphasis in sustainable pest management. Kind of a badass. And having predominantly worked with Cabernet Sauvignon in Napa since the 90s, plenty to add to the conversation. Aaron Jordan, not to be outdone, extensive experience all over Napa, France, and now Sonoma and Oregon for his current project, Fela, which is centered mostly around Pinot Noir. Aaron's true area of expertise is dry farming, which became particularly useful throughout the episode. And you'll find out very quickly, the man is not shy of an opinion. So with that, let's just get to it already. We find ourselves on different sides of the land. 
Did you guys listen to the second podcast at all? Or I haven't had a chance to hear it yet. Oh, cool. Well, that's even better. I okay. listened last you know, night. You like plane. really raw emotions coming out of it, for sure. This was the one with the guy from NASA. <clears throat> yes, the second one. There's there's two. This was the one. So, so there was a, there was a straight grapes. climate change one, and then there was like wine climate change, which just dropped. Like. Yeah, I listened to that. Vivian was like, Dad, what are you listening to? (laughs) Trying to, like, you're trying to what? There's no television. Yeah, I've been traveling. She wasn't into it. I didn't have any Wi-Fi or anything, and so. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, I was making breakfast listening to it. it. I was yelling at the phone. Bullshit. Nice. I actually made some notes on it, because I was like, I actually looked at some of the data. Oh, okay. Yeah, I wasn't wasn't buying it. This is perfect. So we're we're breaking it down. So, um. We should probably start with maybe Ben's intro. So let's just figure out, you know, how Ben got his start. You know, wine, almost more than any other agricultural commodity or crop out there, is very much tied to weather, climate, and the environment. Climate is a kind of fundamental part of terroir. It's part of what makes Burgundy, you know, Burgundy or the Willamette Valley, the Willamette Valley. And so there's kind of a clear climate change connection there. And, and in recent years, it's something I've been exploring to try to understand a little bit more and, and see if we can find some new ways to look at how climate change might affect wine production or, or the ability to grow different grapes in, in different regions as the climate shifts beyond what you know, these regions have historically experienced. Sure, NASA scientist, PhD with an emphasis specifically in drought, how did you kind of hook up to the plant phenology situation? Where did that tie-in come from? Yeah, so actually before I joined NASA, I had, I had done a couple of research projects on plant phenology. Okay. So, uh, you know, focused on kind of natural species. So there's a kind of resort and preserve in, in New Paltz of the Hudson Valley called uh, Mohonk. And uh, they've actually been recording plant phenology for decades. And so, you know, I published, you know, several papers, you know, using that data set to look at how climate change is affecting the timing of, of plants in the spring. And, you know, when I was able to, to hook up with, uh, you know, colleagues like Lizzie Wolkovich, I was able to kind of transfer that, that kind of expertise and apply it to wine. Wine has certain phenological phases as part of their development over the growing season. One that we've kind of really keyed into is verasion, you know, which is really tied to harvest dates in a lot of, in a lot of areas. Um, you know, the kind of the ripening of the grapes. And, you know, that's kind of useful because a lot of these vineyards keep very detailed harvest records. And so it gives us a way to kind of, uh, you know, take this information, look at it over decades and, you know, in the case of France, even centuries, compile that data, compare it to climate and see how harvest dates, you know, which is going to be a proxy for, you know, variation have varied over time uh, and how that's connected to, you know, what the climate system is doing. Oh my God, I wish we had Elizabeth Volkovich with us. <laughs> Lizzie, okay, so you worked with Ben on all this stuff. We're going to, I'm sure, get in deep later in the podcast, but maybe you can just like briefly tell us how you got into this whole plant ecology thing. Oh, sure. Back so, of the paper napkin. Yeah. I didn't know what to do with my life coming out of college, and I had a bad job, and I thought, well, I'll just go to grad school because the job was boring. I went to grad school in ecology. Did that for a while, and coming out of my PhD, was really interested in plant phenology and got funding to look at globally how much is spring leaf out or flowering changing with climate change. 
because we had a few estimates from Europe where all the records are amazing, but we didn't have a lot of estimates from anywhere else. And so in working on that, someone who I don't remember back, you know, before 2010 said to me in passing, you know, wine grapes are the most phenologically diverse plant on earth. And I thought... Sounds like a giant excuse to drink. (laughs) This is actually what most of my colleagues said, because I used to wander around for about five years before I started working on wine grapes at all, talking about this little like sound bite someone had given me about wine grapes and trying to figure out if it was true. And in 2011, I got off a train a little outside of Saint-Emilion and Keith Van Leeuwen, who's at the Institute in Bordeaux there, who's a fantastic wine grape researcher, met with me and answered some of my questions. And it seemed like there were still a ton of unanswered questions about wine grapes and phenology that all of a sudden I realized were incredibly critical with climate change. And so that's how it all started. I met Ben Cook a couple years before then working on global estimates of um, changes in leaf out across wild species. But that's, that's how the wine grape thing started, much thanks to people in France who were happy to chat with me and answer questions I had as sort of an out-there community ecologist with no right to be working on wine grapes and was really surprised with what we still don't know. They, everybody always needs another guest to drink more at the table. <laughs> so everybody's welcome in the wine industry. So in, in regards to um, your focus with this model, has mm-hmm. it been mostly... West Coast, right? So California, Oregon, what parts of France and what parts of, was it Tuscany and Italy that you guys kind of really hyper-focused on? We, I mean, I, there's a couple things we've done. So first of all, wine grape records are some of the longest human records on earth. They're arguably the longest human written records on earth. They only compete with cherry blossoms out in Asia. So this is just an incredible resource for climate people to say, what's happened with climate? Because if you think about thermometers, we haven't had thermometers for very long on Earth. Before we had thermometers, we had plants, and people actually used plant phenology in place of thermometers to understand how the climate was different in Germany versus England. And so one thing is these records. Those are fantastic. Those records come predominantly from France. So we've done a lot of focus on France. Um, The records are especially strong in Burgundy, Bordeaux. And there's a lot of research that comes out of there for us. Other than that, we've just started to sort of, I guess, sort of the first big piece we bit off, basically, was trying to look globally for a small set of varieties. We did 11 varieties. And we're just asking how much varietal turnover are you going to see with climate change given a very simple model? And so we have estimates for that for 11 varieties for the whole globe, but they're at really large grid cells. So I can't tell you for sure what's going to happen in Napa. I can tell you what's going to happen for a grid cell that includes Napa and Sonoma. And I think to me, it's startling beyond the excellent work of Greg Jones, how little many regions know about what's going to happen in the future and what that probably means. But to do it, you have to do it region by region. And so we're just starting to do that for BC. So you referenced Greg Jones. We had a a very interesting phone conversation because the bombs that Ben dropped in this podcast made me want to fight him. And so I I literally, I feel like this guy is fringe. He doesn't know anything about farming. And so I call up Greg Jones had him listen to the podcast. Greg Jones, by the way, at Linfield College, been studying climate change 25 years, TED Talks, et cetera. He listened to the podcast. He's like, I completely agree with absolutely everything in this podcast. So that was, that was really enlightening. Um, but today we have 
uh, people on the grower side. So two winemakers that I hand-selected. Number one, a lot of your work dealt with Northern California. So we have two winemakers in Northern California, Aaron Jordan and Steve Mathiason. And there was work done in Oregon too, specifically with Pinot Noir. Um, Aaron at Phelan knows a little bit about Pinot Noir and he's also moved to Oregon. So maybe you can kind of introduce yourself, Aaron, for the five people who don't know who you are in the wine industry. I was doing the math 33 harvests. Um, 33. Mostly Northern California, but Oregon, uh, France for a couple, Australia for four, three, three, four. Um, uh, Grow grapes, make wine, um, have done so for many years. Many people tend to focus mostly on my own thing now, mostly Northern California, although the incursion into Oregon has begun, it started kind of as a flirtation in 2000, 2001, and then got a little more serious in 2015, and then much, much more serious in 16, 17, 18. So we have a, we're developing a piece of property up there. We do, we crush about 150 tons of mostly Pinot, but Chardonnay, Gamay, Riesling, Gruner, things of that nature in Oregon. And then California's mostly Pinot with Chardonnay uh, and Syrah and other things on the horizon. Mm. Steve Mathiason, you crushed some grapes as well. I have crushed some grapes. <laughs> <laughs> How long have you been in the Valley? Um, came to Napa in 2001. I, I, started, I, went to, I started working in Four Seasons Ag Consulting down in Modesto back in, in 1994. That is a hot town, man. That was called paying your dues right there. So my, so the climate's gotten cooler for me. I went from Modesto to Lodi and then got over here to Napa. Nice. Now, Lodi's cooler yeah. than Napa. Come on, man. <laughs> yeah. And so in, in addition to Cabernet, though, you, you work, like Aaron, work with a lot of different uh, varieties as well, Freeland varieties. So that'll come up a little bit later. So yeah. before we get into like the real meat of this, which is like the sustainability of grape varieties in our regions, I want to start with kind of known quantities because we, we talked a lot about, you know, fires and the water issue. And so I want to kind of start there. So maybe we can queue up um, one of those water segments and... Listen to what Ben has to say about this. We start off with this quote. This is from a podcast called Hidden Forces with your boss, Gavin Schmidt. All right. Um, and I, it's out of context, but it, it holds its constitution. In the podcast, the host said, one can argue that in the future, it may be much more valuable to have water to use as sustainable edible food as opposed to to wine crops. What's your take on that? Well, it kind of depends on where you are, right? I mean, France and Italy, very few vineyards are actually irrigated. So you're not really taking water away from wine. I think places like California, and this is kind of not wine specific, but this is more kind of agriculture. I mean, agriculture you know, is about 70% of the, is, accounts for 70% of the water consumption in, in California. So you kind of take agriculture out of the equation and there's plenty of water for everybody. And so, you know, when you kind of like think about adaptation and, and kind of dealing with droughts and, and, and climate change, you know, you need to start thinking about, you know, these sorts of places where, you know, maybe water needs to be valued a bit higher than it used to be. And maybe we need to make some harder decisions about how we want to use that water. So uh, how do you go about knowing that in your position? 
I mean, you don't. You know, that's a kind of values judgment, right? You've I mean, got some satellite stuff. Looks at groundwater, looks at all these things. Oh, yeah. I mean, we can tell you how much water, you know, we can tell you what's happening to the water. And we can tell you kind of where it is and where it's disappearing. But we can't tell you what you should use that water for. Is it better for LA to have water or is it better for the Imperial Valley to have water? You know, that's not something that can be kind of quantified. So when when James Conway writes his Napa at Last Light book talking about how Napa is kind of at the end of their resources, is there some validity to that, do you think, for Napa Valley? Uh, I don't know about Napa specifically, but but certainly for agriculture in California, Nevada, Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona. The only reason they can have those agricultural economies is because they can use water from the Colorado River or they can use water stored from the snowpack in the Sierra Nevada mountains. They're basically farming in deserts that are okay to farm in because you can add water to the landscape and and you know provide that that moisture that the crops otherwise wouldn't have. So as long as there's plenty of water that you can reroute around, then yeah, things are things are great. But once the availability declines, then you start to create kind of conflicts across stakeholders and discussions and decisions need to be made about who gets the water and, and how do things get prioritized. So I'm going to interrupt him right there All and right. say, I'm not going to disagree with you in a grossly general sense, but um, the Napa Valley uses neither water from the Sierra Nevada nor snowmelt runoff. So I heard that and was like, what you talking about, man? So let's discuss, Steve. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, that's true. I mean, we, Napa, you know, we have a small groundwater basin here. We have hills on both sides and we have to manage it. It's a resource. It's like, you know, I, I look at managing our groundwater, like, because again, we're, we're separated, like Aaron, Aaron says, but, we, but that doesn't mean we have a ton of water. We have major water issues. So we need to manage that resource. To me, it's like the salmon fishery. You, you know, do, do we stop eating salmon? Well, we can eat salmon, but we have biologists out there counting salmon, saying when we can fish, how much we can take, and we can maintain a, that resource. Right now in Napa, our water basin is wild west in the sense that there's the, the tragedy of the commons. We're all going in the same water we're using it. And it's a lot about property rights and when you got in with the water use. But, but anyways, the reality is still that we have a water basin here in Napa that's getting renewed. And if we can manage it responsibly, there's no reason we can't utilize it. And, and the only way we're going to get out of this whole situation with adapting to climate change is to get out of the generalizations and start doing the hard work of drilling down and managing things on a case-by-case basis. I love Lizzie. She's like taking fastidious notes like a pres- presidential debate. You have something to say about this. I was just going to point out that the management of the salmon fisheries is not always very successful. And I honestly don't know of a success story in managing groundwater in the United States currently. Because I think what you're saying is, I I don't know the exact details of the groundwater or the water sources in Napa. And I don't know what happens if you run out of your local source, if you have rights to other sources. But this has certainly become a bigger issue in other states. And there's been community attempts to try to holistically manage groundwater as a community for communities that have closed groundwater resources. Mm -hmm. And I don't know of a story where it works out and I don't know how you make it work. I think you make it work economically. And I mean, I think that if you look forward into the future and think about climate change, I don't debate the fact that there's a lot of vineyards in 
the north coast of California that without supplemental irrigation probably shouldn't be vineyard. Much like you probably shouldn't farm rice in the Central Valley, just saying, that's like a gross waste of water. If you go back in time, uh, and I happened to, I worked for a winery for 20 years that farmed only, basically we, we made wine from dry farmed vineyards that were, I don't want to say all pre-prohibition, but a large part of them were pre-prohibition vineyards. And so like the old timers knew exactly where to plant. They're very specific spots in this valley. And if you took someone from the, you know, the 1800s and brought them forward to today, they would look around and say, how in the F are you guys growing grapes all over the place, up there in those hills and down there on those flats where normally that would rot and that would die because there's no water. So I think that it, it's kind of the, that argument that you, I mean, sometimes you hear in the Central Valley, you know, almonds are gigantic water suckers and they use a hundred gallons per tree per day. And I'm like, well, they can, they're kind of like an olive. I mean, if you want to water it, go for it. If you've purchased your land with the economic assumption that you're going to get five tons to the acre and suddenly someone turns the tap off and you get one and a half tons to the acre, that could be problematic. You can still grow stuff. You can still grow almonds in the Central Valley without irrigating them. You just don't, if, if you've paid X multiplier per acre, that, that's where I say like the economic reality kicks in and that's going to be a brutal learning curve for a lot of people. But grapes grow. I mean, we grew grapes in Paso Robles with six inches of rain dry farmed. I mean, grapes are super hardy. We didn't get five tons to the acre doing that. You know, three quarters to the ton to the acre, ton, ton and a quarter in a good year. I think grapes are certainly one of the crops that has just tremendous adaptation potential with climate change. It's a unique crop in that way. And that's sure. partially why I work on it because there's a lot of climate variability inherent in the crop. That's why I started working on it. And you can do lots and lots of different things depending on the climate and how you're willing to grow. Oh, absolutely. So, and I mean, I think about, you think of the modern era. I mean, go back 100 years, there was no Cabernet in the Napa Valley. I mean, that was the whole thing with the podcast with Ben, like, oh, there's not going to be any Cabernet. I'm like, well, Cabernet is a new thing anyway. I mean, and, and taste changes. So if you're going to take your 2018 taste and say, well, in 2050, you're not going to be able to grow Cabernet here. I, I say bullshit. Total. I mean, you may grow something, you may grow Cabernet that is in a different form than Cabernet in 2018, but it would be arguable that a lot of the Cabernet that's made in 2018 is very fundamentally different than a lot of the Cabernet that was grown here in 1958. Mm -hmm. Different rootstock, different irrigation methods, different trellising, you know. Yeah, completely different sensibility about what style of wine one wanted to make from it. Right, what, what ripe is, what, yeah. all those things. I'm like, I'm yeah. not buying this, man. <laughs> well, my question is, as warming and drought accelerate, is there a potential for, you know, um, your satellite footage and that information to be valuable, a valuable resource for actual vineyard owners, farmers, wineries? Because you guys have that, at least NASA has that. The groundwater. That information. Is right. that accessible? Is that... It's like published in the New York Times recently. You can look at their groundwater. NASA's data are all public. It's a huge benefit of the United States that not all of Europe does. We make 
almost all of our data like that completely public. Any one of us could access it right now if the government were not currently furloughed. So I actually have been trying to access some data from Noah, and it's furloughed, so I can't get it. Um. I'm so pissed because I was scheduled for my global entry appointment, and they shut me down. Oh, so you're I'm serious? Be, I'm going to be in a four-hour line in Heathrow tomorrow you because of, of Trump's border wall, you basically. Um, it's not a wall. It's a fence. No. It's a, it's a, it's a see-through thing. fence. It's this is the thing. All Good those point. data are available, um, especially here in America. You have tremendous access to resources for data, and— that's what I was saying is I think, you know, the projections Ben Cook and I have worked on are almost to me a proof of concept of what's going to happen, how bad is going to be, what do we really, really need to know that we don't know that's making us uncertain about these projections. But if anybody asks me what should I do in my own vineyard, my answer is you should get somebody to build much better local projections for you. You should deal with your local issues and you should start planting a bunch of random varieties. Since we don't know the projections, is it locally here? Because we have a very weird microclimate here in Napa that's hard to model because you have the yeah. ocean right there. Um, we can be pretty sure that things are going to change. So we're, we're doing a lot with different varieties. We just planted a, a, a we're doing a lot with, with different rootstocks just to prepare for less water, um, you know, getting away from the shallow rootstock sort of fad of the, 80s, 90s, 2000s, that you had better quality with low vigor rootstocks and getting back to high vigor, deep rooted rootstocks, but getting into varieties. And so we have some testers. We have Sagrantino in our vineyard in Oak Knoll as an idea for something that could be adaptable for the heat, especially something that maybe a blender into Cabernet to get the nice fresh tannins back. We have a variety that was never released from Davis. We call it Ripkin. That's a, it's a cross between Cabernet Sauvignon Grenache and um, Carignan that Olmo bred for the Central Valley, but it wasn't sort of fruity. We're not looking for fruity, so we have that planted as a tester. We're trying different trellising. It's all about sort of like dabbling. It with these like with these new ones like Sagrantino. This is about dabbling into let's see how this thing grows and learn about it, so that ten fifteen years from now we we have some track record with it. But I, I just think that that's what you have to be doing here, you know. And and you know, Umbria can be hot as fuck. For yeah, sure. exactly. Well, we're going to be going back to the 8x12, two-wire, super inefficient mm-hmm. canopy system that actually really worked well. And, you know, it didn't work well in the modern mindset, but it actually, in a hot climate, an inefficient canopy is exactly what you want. When I sit down at conferences and talk about, people are talking about, you know, old vine Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, I'm like, can, can I raise my hand and just say there isn't any here? I mean, there's maybe two vineyards. And how many of you out there who own vineyards are planting on St. George, uh, 1103P? Nobody. I'm like, yeah. so none of these vineyards that you're planting today mm-hmm. are going to be old. They're all going to be dead before they're old. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Because we just, it's just not if it's, I mean, if you look at Napa, let's say if the climate were to stay the same, just the profusion of luxury homes sucking up water, we know the water is going away. True. Even if the climate were, were staying the same. So every vineyard, like, so this, we just re- put 4,000 vines in this hillside. It's all 1103 in St. George. Right. And, and, so, and so we're setting it up so that it won't need any irrigation. And that's the, that's, you know, that's the goal. And if I get into an over-vigor situation, and so maybe we don't have as much concentration in the wine, 
fine yeah. because when you know, they're young, yeah, and we, and we're not looking for that much concentration in our wine anyways, and so I'm just you know, it's, it's it might as well start now on getting on on the pendulum swinging back. Well, that's I think it's the it's the creep. I mean, if you were to take the modern Cabernet drinker and hand them a bottle of you know BV. 58 George de la Tour on release, they wouldn't like it. You know, it's yeah. not that they weren't, we weren't growing grapes in the same way. We had a total different, different, our sensibility about it. We live in this immediate culture of it has to be delicious right now. And I'm like, right, well, that's great. Um, I don't know that you can flick a switch and cause people to, to start drinking a different category of wines. But when you're slowly moving, Mm-hmm. Two inches a year, suddenly, 20 years later, you look around and say, oh, I'm on the other side of the room. How did I get over here? Yeah. And you've taken everyone with you, which is why I tend to think that, I mean, Napa is a privileged area to grow grapes. I'm not saying that in 100 years, we're not going to find a bunch of other privileged areas to grow grapes to the, you know, in, in cooler areas. But uh I think the American public will evolve their drinking style to match what places like Napa and Sonoma are producing. Mm-hmm. Y'all want to get to the meat? I know it. We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna start with the appetizer. During the winter time, you know, most of the reservoirs are operated for flood control. Liquid water is kind of allowed to kind of pass through. But then, historically, the way they've been operated is: come April, they close the gates to capture all the snow melt coming down off the Sierra Nevada mountains. And that water that's captured by the, uh, that snow melt that's captured by the reservoirs becomes the water that gets used um, during the summertime. But if you don't have that snow that's going to store that water, right, if it's all coming down as rainfall, then you still have to manage for flood control and that water kind of gets lost and, and wasted. Is there indication in climate change that, Alpine areas are going to continue to suffer. In other words, is the snowpack going to get worse? Yeah, I mean, there have been a few studies that have, have, you know, I've demonstrated already that during recent drought years in California and Pacific Northwest that the snowpack was much lower than it would have been normally because of of climate change. Snow is a very nonlinear thing. Below 32 degrees Fahrenheit, you have snow. Above 32 degrees Fahrenheit, that all turns to rain. And that's when you can start melting things. And you so, make it look easy, Ben. Um, <laughs> thanks. So you don't even need to, you don't, you don't even need to, to warm up that much right. to have an impact. You just need to warm up enough to get above that threshold to start to have a big impact. No debate. However, again, we are in Napa and Sonoma, and our reservoirs are not fed by Sierra Snowpack. They're fed by... Most people in this county, Steve, you interact with a lot of people. I mean, if you have water rights in a creek, you have a weir. When the weir's spinning at X speed, you have the right to pump X volume of water into your reservoir. Mm-hmm. It's not a, our reservoirs aren't flood control reservoirs, they're water capture reservoirs. Yeah, we have one on the hill that just filled up this weekend. No, I mean, I think yeah. every area is specific, mm-hmm. but the general trends for California, I think there will be mm-hmm. major changes in how California as a state operates given changes in the snowpack. Well, he's, he's accurate. I mean, that, that's true. And I mean, there's a huge debate on how to manage the reservoirs and maybe you bump up the percentage that, uh, you know, on February 1, what's your number? Because these, all these reservoirs have percentage fill numbers based on date. So... And it's all historically modeled. So on February 1st, the 
you know, spill the, or the, the, the max capacity at reservoir X is going to be this many acre feet. And even though we're in a drought and the snowpack is at 10%, they're not moving those numbers up. It's like, guys, you got you to gotta evolve here. Yeah. You, you, you got to move that number to like stop letting the water go through. Yeah, you know, they have that issue because there's the flood control issue and oh. one flood and well, and, and that's where the votes are. And that's right, the you built are. these dams and everybody then cruises yeah. in and builds yeah. a house. No, in, right under the dam. In, right, yeah. in areas that historically were flooded. Elk, Elk Grove. I mean, the fire yeah. and flood control building in California is, since I started my PhD in 2003, I'm horrified by where people build homes and where we insure them in California. Well, and I mean, think when about it will the change fires is the big question. Uh, in Sonoma and Napa County in 2017. Yep. The fire that started in Calistoga and blew over the hill into Santa Rosa, burned my daughter's high school down, followed almost the identical path of a fire 50 years ago. The difference was there's been this massive infill of building. And so a lot of people died. A tremendous amount of property loss happened. And if you went back 50 years, people would be like, what are you doing building there? What? You know, and there's no regulation. There's no like... The insurance doesn't control it either. You get your house insured even though you build it in the middle of a eucalyptus grove. Right. It's with cedar shakes. Things need to change on a fundamental level. It's not to say you can't build a house there, but build it in a tilt-up concrete method with a standing seam metal roof. Like, don't have exposed. I mean, because people say, well, you know, my it was relatively fireproof. I'm like, yeah, but the wind was blowing 80 miles an hour. The embers were going uphill. They were getting into your attic eaves through the vents that aren't the sealable, you know, modern construction. At X heat, the vent closes. There, there are ways of building in these areas. It's just we didn't learn the lesson. So fire was one of the major reasons why climate was the tipping point for me personally for climate change and we actually recorded these podcasts getting into fire literally two weeks before the 18 fires hit so let's cue this up how bad are fires gonna get i mean 17 was a monster and to have it in december you know it's a couple things you know that are happening one you know basically if you have the vegetation on the ground you know that's your fuel so if you have the grasses, the chaparral, that sort of stuff. If it's really warm and you're not getting rainfall, then that's going to dry out that fuel and that's going to make it very easy for fires to get very, very big. And that's the kind of climate change side of the story. But the other flip side is that more and more people are living in these fire-prone ecosystems because the coast especially is so expensive. You know, people are building cities and housing communities, you know, you know, in the chaparral, you know, in these grasslands. And so they're just, the exposure to these fires when they do occur increases. And also the chance of ignition, you know, increases as well, right? So I think, I think last year, like one of the fires started from, from sparks from a, um, you know, a power line. It's interesting because it's double whammy. So one, one aspect of it is the fires themselves, obviously, for life, but and to a lesser extent, vineyards. Vineyards typically don't burn, you know, unless there's dry grasses left in the vineyards, which is are, are more rare occasions. People usually are pulling grass and tilling. But in terms of smoke taint, that oh, yeah. that is a major, major problem. And truthfully, it's it's not anything we're prepared to deal with because you just 
you lose that vintage if it happens. There's not a lot you can do. Yeah, I know. Or I have a friend who, who knows a winemaker in Sonoma. And in the contract, it, it's like if they're smoke tainted, then we don't have to buy them. And that's exactly what happened. You know, last year, a fire came through, spared most of the property, but the smoke tainted these grapes and... You know, it, he it's, lost. A, it's a constant battle. Even even the fires in Mendo, you just you know you see ash in your car in Napa, so you're wow. just you, you're you're wondering you know based on where the winds are blowing, fires that may be twenty, thirty, forty miles away can severely impact mm-hmm. wine that's either sitting on the vine or potentially in barrel if the fire's close enough. Mm-hmm. So obviously a big battle. How do we get ahead of this? I mean that's a that's a tougher one. I it, so for me, two thousand eight was worse than seventeen or eighteen. Right, the Mendo you're a Dino, <laughs> right, you know, guy. Well, but th- those fires weren't thirty or forty miles away. They were one hundred and fifty or yeah. two hundred and fifty miles away. I was away. just gonna say in BC you could have fires this summer. You could have fires. Well, and it's a it's many a, miles further and get smoke taint. Yeah, you can get smoke taint at a much earlier time of the year. It's not so much, I mean, not to say that there isn't smoke taint with fires in October, but it's, um, I'm going to turn to you and say, I, I want to say it's right around verasion is actually the time that you really don't want your vineyard bathed in smoke. There's something about the sizing or the coloring process that the it's more permeable. I mean, because we get smoke regularly, but 2008 was... I could draw the line for you on a map. If you were north of that line, your wine had smoke taint. And there were no fires in August or September. It was all like June, July smoke. And it was from way north. Right, because of course during Barazon is when the plant's starting to devote everything to the fruit. And so everything that goes straight onto that plant has a much higher chance of going into the berry, right? So once you start to have that uptick that is Barazon in the sugar, I think that's... It's not good timing. And, and just from, from a life standpoint, I mean, do we need to do a better job with, you know, I hear competing philosophies on how to manage fire, you know, you know whether we do controlled burns, et cetera. There seems to be people who are morally against that, et cetera. What, what are your guys' opinions on how we get ahead of this in California? We all know that the forests are supposed to burn and the controlled burns are really that's the way that our current ecosystem is set up for, but you have all these houses everywhere. So how do you do a controlled burn when it's all full of houses? Can't. And so I don't know, you know, I have no clue on, on how we get ourselves out of this one. Well, and the smoke taint issue for us frequently isn't about fires that are here. There are fires way further away yeah. in, in very large remote areas that frankly, most of the time are spontaneously ignited with lightning strikes and just burn out over the course of the summer. I mean, when you if you fly from this part of the world up to Oregon, I mean, there's fires everywhere and they're out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. There are lightning strikes in the Trinity Alps and they're just burning. There's not a lot of roads nearby. The CDF doesn't devote a lot of resource to it. It's just... Well, we, we also have a policy in the United States that we generally don't try to put out fires in natural preserve areas. And this is a big change. We used to be the policy in the early 1900s. It was called all fires out by 10 a.m. And if you ever hike around and you see these old fire towers, that you can, yeah. there's so many hikes you can go to where you yeah. see an old fire tower. Most of these fire towers come from that period of time. All fires out by 10 a.m. Some guy had to stand there and look for fires because we had a policy where we put all fires out by 10 a.m. We had smoke jumpers that yep. would jump into remote areas and put out all these fires. 
And we realized from that that, number one, sometimes the smoke jumpers died for potentially not the best use of their lives. And two, it wasn't actually helping anything in terms of fire management. Today, our best understanding, and I still think we don't know enough, is that you should have these controlled burns. You want a mosaic of fires. That's how it probably was naturally, that there was an area that burned, and it burned itself out because it ran into an area that had burned recently enough that there wasn't enough fuel. Obviously, we can't do that today because we, in my mind, we effectively incentivize building in areas you shouldn't build in California because we give people insurance for them. And then we react with, you know, honest, heartfelt emotion when people lose their homes, which is understandable. But as an ecologist, like harsh, angry ecologist who's worked in California since 2003, I feel less sympathy because I think, why are we as a state encouraging people to build these houses and having a conversation on TV about how horrible it is that they've lost their homes without a conversation about why as a state don't we have resources to incentivize people living in areas that aren't so prone to fires that prevent us from being able to control fires? All that is something we can deal with. The big unknown with climate change is how the wind patterns change and how the fires fundamentally change. And that's so far out of our control that I think, you know, the Santa Anas are a huge problem in Santa Barbara and other areas. We don't really know what happens to Santa Ana winds with climate change. They might get stronger. They might get worse. They might happen at different times of year. And so there's things you can manage with fire in California. And then to me, there's the, you know, running problem of climate change that we can't well predict some of these outcomes. Right, because if you think about the, if you think about climate change, so 50 years ago, there was a fire that was almost identical in scope in Napa and Sonoma County. The ignition source was different. Um, the fire 50 years ago was a hunter who was smoking a cigarette. Gotta love that. In a windstorm in October when it was super dry. I'm sure if I say that there was a PG&E, you know, transmission line that started the fire, I'm probably, like that hasn't legally been proven. But if we just say that that was arguably the source, so that gets into line management, it gets into, hey, maybe it's, I mean, PG&E did that this year. Like there's going to be a windstorm. We're just going to shut the grid down. Mm-hmm. And then everyone goes nuts because the grocery store in Calistoga has to throw away all the food that rotted because they don't have a backup generator and the PG&E turned the power off for 24 hours. So we as a society have to adapt to, you know, do you pay more for electricity so that they clear lines? I mean, I was driving over here thinking to myself, so PG&E has basically on River Road in the Russian River Valley cut down every tree if you that could fall down and hit a power line. This is west of Fulton Road. So the fire stopped at Fulton Road effectively. So they've gone west of Fulton and cut down every single tree. And yet when you drive over the hill through the fire scar zone, they haven't done that. I mean, that's the old rationale. The old understanding of fire is that you don't get these areas that double burn in short succession. And that's a big change, I think, in recent years, that we have burns on top of burns. And it sort of undercuts how we understood fires in California, which is that if you do enough of these controlled burns, a fire runs into an old controlled burn and stops burning. And that doesn't always happen anymore, which is a big issue. Yeah, I just, I look at it and say, but you replaced all the lines in the same place and the trees are all growing back. Now you've got this dense thatch of, of underbrush coming in. I'm like, it's I amazing know. how fast it grows back. Oh, but that's yeah. all non-native grass. That's a different issue too, right? Right now in California, the stuff that's growing back is a non-native suite of species from Europe. 
And potentially, if we could imagine what the world was like 500 years ago in California, you'd have stubby little weird chaparral coming back. And it probably wouldn't burn again because it's just stubby little weird shrubs. But now we have massive suites of European grasses that just thatch the landscape and become a major fuel source. Interesting. Why did that happen? Because the friars came over to California and set up their missions with uh, feed for all the cows and things that they brought. And they brought a massive seed source of invasive European grasses that, for whatever reason, that I don't think we well understand, are doing very, very well in California. Ironic that their name is Friar. <laughs> Friar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, most of, most of our agricultural weeds are like your natives from the Mediterranean. The stuff you didn't want, There's actually, There's a ton the of feed. stuff. You're, you, know, you just go down the list of our weeds, and they're pretty much all from the Mediterranean here in California. And we can date when they came because you can go through the bricks and the missions and see what's in those bricks that was mixed in, and that's sort of the first time you see those grasses show up in California. I think this brings up, like, a greater, like, philosophical topic. And, you know, at one point, and I hear you talk about this all the time, at one point we were really connected to nature, and technology has allowed us to disassociate and become further apart from the food chain. And now that Mother Nature is rebelling, um, it seems like there needs to be a greater understanding uh, of these loss of connections with nature, that we need to perhaps be more like a small town and engage our neighbors, especially if we're in some of these fire-prone areas. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think you look at the, like, watch oak trees. Watch when the acorns drop. It's fascinating because all of a sudden, acorns will start dropping. It's super early. You're like, huh, I think we're going to have an early harvest. I don't know. It's just like the, the physiological life cycle of different plants is interconnected. In Santa Barbara, uh, Chris Whitcraft used to know it was time because the tarantulas moved from the coast across the road. And there'd be this point, like right at harvest, where all these tarantulas would migrate. It was like arachnophobia across the road. And he knew, he knew the plants, he knew the vines were, were getting close. I think we need whiskey for this next segment right here. Um, but it, this is kind of like the foreboding pre-bomb drop. From what I've seen on the ground level, producers are making adjustments basically in the vineyard. For instance, yeah, certain areas, if you're just on, let's say, a south-facing slope, um, and traditionally you've planted some of these vineyards thinking you want the best possible sun exposure southwest. Now they're adding north-facing sites that they never thought would ever ripen. Mm -hmm. Can some of these warming trends be mitigated in that way, or at least a, a, not mitigated, but adapted in that way? Oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, a lot of these wine growing areas have complex topography, right? You know, you go to some place like Tuscany, right? Which is all kind of like, right. you know, hills with different aspects and, and slopes. And so, yeah, I mean, I think at the micro level, there's a lot of potential to to deal with some of these changes by just kind of shifting where even within the vineyard you're, you're planting the grapes. The question is, is there kind of a hard limit? Like with climate change, are these kind of shifts taking advantage of the kind of microclimate enough to completely deal with climate change or is it just kind of going to be a delaying tactic if you're just kind of using the same varieties that you've always been doing? Lizzie, we were talking about this today is that one degree shift. So if you look traditionally at kind of the cyclical nature of the warmest spell that we've had historically and the coolest point of an ice age, that separation is four degrees Celsius 
typically? Four to five degrees yeah. Celsius. Okay, and within that, you know, apex and, you know, the very bottom of temperature, um, how long historically in that record does it take to get from here to here? We're talking like hundreds of thousands of years, right? From the warmest point, or at least, oh, let's say- Oh, yeah, thousands of years. Tens, tens of thousands. Tens okay. of thousands of years. So the, like the current era that we're in, the Holocene, is the last 10,000-ish years. And that's the period since we got out of the last- Ice Age. Eight, ice Age. Okay, so, so it took us a couple thousand years to probably, because basically you get in, like we're in the warm part and it was what we call a stationary climate. It stayed warm for a long time and the climate was fairly constant. And that's how an ice age is. It's cold for a really long time. And then you come out of it and that takes a Okay, so we can years. say conservatively a few thousand years, you go five degrees. Several thousand years, yes. Several thousand years. Okay, so. And crazy things happen during that period. So we're at one degree right now. And we're predicted to be at two degrees at 2050. Yes. And that is the global average is one thing I want to stress. So places like Europe are going to warm more than that. Where I live in BC is going to warm more than that. So we can say within a 30-year span, we are predicted to go 20 to 30% of the normal range at the warmest to the coldest point. That is a gigantic switch. And so the, the whole crux of this podcast is how how long can we adapt and can we continue to adapt? Um, As growers of wine grapes. Yes. As addition, in addition to human citizens of the earth with <laughs> right. sea level rise. Yeah. <laughs> Which is less important, of right. course. I was going to say, because there's a pretty ar- large arc of topic there. So this was the make me pee a little soundbite of the entire podcast. And not for the faint of heart, let's cue it up and then we're going to go into it deep. Is there an expiration date on things like Cabernet in Napa? You know, I don't know that we have a definitive answer yet, but there's some suggestion that, yeah, there could be. Like, at a certain level of warming, it just might be too hot, at least to get the kind of quality that you want. I mean, anybody can make two-buck chuck kind of, you know, anywhere, right? I mean, and, you know, you could if that's all you care about in terms of wine, then sure, you could probably keep doing that in Napa, Sonoma, you know, outside of Santa Barbara kind of forever. But, you know, if you're going for the kind of high value wines, then, yeah, I think there's a, there's a, a strong potential for it just to be too hot to really get good quality caps off in, in some of these places. Do you have like a, a modeled out time frame where that would look really bad for Cabernet? So we don't have a time frame. Well, the way we actually kind of assessed it was to look at, uh, or we're assessing it, is to look at temperature thresholds. So basically, what happens in a world that's two degrees warmer, and what happens in a world that's kind of four degrees warmer? Now we're talking. You know, which I think is kind of a is a kind of a, a better way to kind of frame a lot of this stuff, right? You know, because um, then you're you're not worried about some, any kind of artificial time horizon. You're thinking about like, right. You know, what the temperature is going to be. You know, I think in what I remember in both cases, Capsol becomes not ideal in Napa. In the lower warming case, though, there's other grape varieties that can kind of come in. You can kind of exploit that diversity and still kind of maintain good quality kind of wine production in, in Napa, but it just won't be the kind of classic Cabernet Sauvignon, you know, that Napa is known for. You, know, you see similar things in our analyses. That's at two degrees? Yeah. So at two degrees, there's flexibility to exploit the kind of diversity of wine grapes, you know, and to find new varieties to kind of plug in. When's you know, a conservative estimate of when two degrees is going to hit us? 
Uh, I mean, I think two degrees. So, you know, we're probably about one degree right now. You know, I think probably like mid-century. 2050. 2050. You know, it's probably a reasonable time horizon if we kind of continue on the kind of pace we're going that we would expect to see a, a kind of two-degree so world. So this is a, yeah. So a business-as-usual assessment yeah. with carbon emissions would put it at 2050. I mean, if we stopped it right now, like there's some inertia in the system, so we'd still, we'd probably kind of warm up a little bit more over the next 10 years, you know, maybe a few tenths of a degree. And so, you know, I guess we, in a world where we did that, we could probably prevent kind of two degrees. But the way these things kind of happen, I think it's, you know, I think it's probably a foregone conclusion that we're going to be over two degrees. So, Mike, I'm going to go back to something that Lizzie said, which is you're talking about two degrees of global average. That's what he's talking about. Yes, this is a right. global and, average. And in addition we, to one degree of warming already. So right. we're talking about three degrees overall since the 70s. Oh, yeah. No, but I'm just saying if you say by 2050. So, I mean, I think about it in more of the human life work cycle. Um, so we've got massive climate change going on. And yet we've had some of the coldest summers we've had. Right. San Francisco didn't break 70 degrees in the month of August for the first time in the history of weather keeping two years ago. Which could very well be related to climate change. Sure, it gets hot in the yeah. hot inland, hot air rises, sucks cold air off yeah. the ocean. Well, that impacts us. Yeah. That, that's, a, that's a Napa-Sonoma phenomenon right there. I mean, it's not, I think if you go up to Oregon and you say, all right, we're a two and a half hour drive from the coast, maybe less, we're instantaneously impacted by that. So that's where I'm like, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to get, I mean, I'm not a scientist. I'm a farmer, but on some level you're connected in that level. And I mean, climate change for me, I mean, we've had some of the most erratic growing seasons that I've ever seen. We get hail. I mean, we never used to get hail. We get super cold weather, late frost. I mean, those are the kind of things that I see as impact. If, as impacting us more in climate change than necessarily temperature. So I talked to Greg Jones about the, you know, sucking the air inland. So the idea being if Central Valley heats way up, that all the cool air from the ocean will be sucked even further than it normally was. He said that there was nothing conclusive to prove that, even though logically it does make sense. Did, did you and Ben have any research on that? Because I never got to ask him about that. We haven't worked on those sort of low-scale, small-scale um, orographic features, and I think they're hard. They're really hard. And one of the things that's really hard to predict with climate change is shifts in the wind patterns. And, you know, effectively what you're describing is sort of a weather event um, that has to do with very fine spatial resolution topography of the area. And that's where the climate models are struggling right now. That's where climate models are in many ways stuck is until we can better predict weather, we can't better predict climate. The climate models do a fantastic job on sort of a decadal scale and a larger spatial scale. The stuff you need to decide what to do about climate change as a grower in Napa Valley is where we can't give you the exact predictions. But I, I guess I do have a question, which is, do you, do you discount, do you, are you saying that Napa will be insulated from climate change given its unique sort of topography? Or are you saying that the actual issues that will impact growers from climate change are not warming? I think that it, I think ultimately warming impacts growers, but I think in the short term there are a whole host of other 
collateral issues that are directly related to climate change yeah. that are way more impactful. Um, I, I just don't, um, I mean, I think about the last X number of vintages and I think about the, you know, the heat spikes and, uh, you know, again, I go back to canopy management and things of that nature. It does get hot here. So in and 20, historically, it's gotten hot right. here. So in 2017, during the heat spikes, what did you do on those 40 degree days? Nothing. Nothing. Can't do it. I, I don't have any... I have no tool to do anything. And how how did it go for the vintage in that case? Um, I like my 2017s. Um, I, I, w- I was done with harvest before it started um, firing. Right. Um, and so the July heat spikes didn't seem to have a big impact. You know, what I would say to that is my personal favorite vintages tend to be the colder years. Um, I think that, you know, what happens when you get heat events like that, if you think about 2010, we had similar heat events. I tend to think from a public drinking perspective, people love them. They're generous and forward. And I'm the acid freak going, no, no. I mean, you, you just get into a, a, a physical constraint of I have X number of tons to pick. It was 21 bricks. It was tracking at a sugar accumulation of 0.2 bricks a day. And suddenly it went up one and a half bricks a day for three days in a row. And I can't pick fast enough. There's not enough humans. There's not enough machines. It just doesn't work. It's the nature of grapes. They're fickle. They're the Goldilocks of the plant world. They don't like it too hot. They don't like it too cold. They want it just right. So, I mean, if it gets too hot, it's bad. If it gets too cold, it's bad. We deal with it all the time. Well, bud break is an interesting thing you bring up for for warming. 2011 was a hot year for the U.S., but it was a cold year here in Napa. We had a very late bud break. 12, we had more of a normal bud break. 13 on, we've had early bud breaks. So that's the problem with how do you model it because sometimes if it's hot, it pulls the cold air in a lot, like 11. Sometimes if it's hot, the high pressure pushes out. But it, I, there has been, in, in general, I think an earlier bud break for sure. And it's And, and I take that as a benefit of the climate change because we have all these late season like the late season heat event to me is like having a gnarly rain or hail in europe that's those are the ones that really thrash us or the you know i, I always call it farming for labor day you're you, you you plan all season for that late season heat event like 2010 i just watch people pull leaves and i'm like no <laughs> don't, why are you pulling leaves are you crazy because right, it was time. foggy all day and then all year i mean and they pull leaves in august and they get fries and all of the viticulture any everything to get early ripeness even on a warmer year so I can, we can get that fruit off before that fall heat event because what you know because what happens is you have that system set up all summer that's bring you know it's foggy in san francisco it's hot inland and we're kind of protected by that pull in of the air but when they when the fall hits and, it, and the oceans finally warmed up more and you don't have as much of a gradient and i call it the toilet backs up all of a sudden we get the weather from nevada coming in on us that's when our quality goes to hell interesting so later season issues in in california template are definitely worse than earlier season issues yeah because the early bud break you're looking at frost and we and and you know it's we haven't had a bad frost year in quite some time now. Two thousand eight was bad in Sonoma County. Two thousand eight, like like you know, the, but the the days of turning fans on like thirty mornings in the spring, that's like you know, knock on wood. So, what's your reaction to 
the predictions that that Ben asserted. So my reaction is is multifold on that one. Okay, the the little micro view here as a Napa farmer is when we say Napa, that doesn't even mean anything climate wise. And you didn't see much cab below Yauntville. Now, now we're seeing cab in the Carneros. In the Carneros, which was inconceivable not even that long ago, like ten years ago, that was pretty much inconceivable. Other than a few people at the top of Carneros, like the Trichard, or you know, like Lee Hudson's planting a little bit of cab. It's all you know. It's there's you know, it's like Merlot is like it was kind of like cold for Merlot not that long ago in Carneros, but now we can grow cab down there. But again, Carneros and Calistoga, you might as well be talking Napa and Lodi, or you might as well be, talk, you know, or Sonoma Coast and Napa. I mean, there's this, these are, Carneros and Calistoga are totally different climates, but yet Cab is such an adaptable grape. This is the irony that the grape we're talking about is Cab. Like if we are talking Pinot in Burgundy, then there, to me, there's much more razor's edge climate wise with Pinot Noir. Cabernet is like the most adaptable variety. I, I can think of it's just a crazy variety that you can grow in many many different climates. So I'm not that personally concerned about our future of cab here. It's not whether we can grow cab. It's whether there's an economy out there that can buy our cab. That's the concern. Yeah, we're still going to be growing cab in 2050. Yeah, we'll I'll, grow. I'll bet ben we're going to grow really good one. wine in 2050. But someone has to buy it, and so that's where climate change is scary for me personally. So, Lizzie, do you feel that, that CAB and NAPA having an expiration date in terms of, of quality in 2050, is, do you feel that's a broad brush assessment? Or? Yes, all of these estimates are broad brush because unless you drill down and use super localized climate projections and more than that, I would say use data from how people are growing CAB right now in NAPA, what kind of style of Cabernet they want, how they're managing their trellis, how they're managing their soils. It's hard to make really accurate local projections. So all of that could be taken with a grain of salt. More than that, I was looking at some of the data related to these projections. And one thing I was struck by was how uncertain the estimates are in California. So if you look at how certain we are about how much Cabernet and other varieties will change in California, the the noise, the sort of, well, maybe it'll change 20%, but actually it could also change 80%. So we say, you know, 60% between. That's huge. And that's different than Europe. So in Europe, our estimates are less uncertain. If the Carneros gets hotter than Calistoga, we have way bigger problems than someone else growing better wine somewhere else. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, I can't even, it's going to be like Mad Max. You know, well, I mean, like the it, thing for me, like roll the hand grenade under the tent, yeah, flap. So, I mean, I've listened to all this and I'm thinking, so you're talking about naturally made wines. Oh, wait, no, you're not. You're talking about Cabernet and Napa, one of the most manipulated grape varieties on a seller practice level. You got to be kidding me. I mean, people are already picking at 28, 30 bricks. So what's global warming going to do? N- nothing. You're just going to tinker with it every bit as much as you did before. People we, uh, drink these wines and have no idea what goes on in the winery. Zero. There's no ingredient list. There's no, there's no nothing. Yeah, have have you had a vegetal Bordeaux lately? That's not climate change. That's flash to tonk. That's technology. <laughs> they just figured out how to get rid of pyrazines. 
No, lots of journalists ask me about powdered tannins and right. I'm like, and come on, is man. this really happening? And and people are, where are people buying these things as though it is an illicit substance that growers must be going to an underworld dark well, web? I, I'm just like, oh, it's going to get too hot, and Cabernet is not going to have acid. Cabernet doesn't have acid now. I mean, I shouldn't say it doesn't have acid, but the generally. I mean, I had a friend come over to the winery and, you know, bag, brown bag, bag with the cork. Oh, try this. What do you think? And I'm like, tastes like a $250 bottle of Napa Cabernet that tastes like 85 other wines. So manipulated. The only thing I can tell you is the Cooper that it was aged in. Steve, you're kind of like one of the few renegades in Napa Valley. So what's your take on it? Without going down down that rabbit hole. But I just think that there is so much... Um, like good solid viticulture. Earlier I mentioned rootstocks, deeper rooted rootstocks. I'm really into organic farming, different cover cropping regimes. I'm really focused on minimizing irrigation and what irrigation we do is very deep to encourage deep roots so the plants are more buffered, but you, and hopefully you're not delaying ripeness with irrigation. So most of our vineyards, if we're, when we're irrigating, we're irrigating one to three times per season total but we're putting it down deeply and trying to keep a buffered, resilient vine. Row orientation, we put a new vineyard in so it doesn't, so the heat load is evenly balanced. So the hottest time of the day, the fruit's underneath the canopy. You know, it used to be you, you planted rows for maximum photosynthesis. Now, instead, it's planting the rows, orienting them northeast for um, minimum heat load on the fruit. You can drill down as deep as you want to get using seaweeds for stress hormones to, when your heat spell is coming so that the plant can handle the heat better. Um, I need seaweed for my stress hormones. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Like, you know, cross arms on the trellises so that you have, you know, more shading over the fruit. Viticulture, like, just had this whole revolution really 10 to 15 years ago. Nick DeCuzlian did some really good research on the detrimental effects of 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 light and heating on wine quality that changed everything because we are still going under the supposition that more light is better and people were just like stripping all the leaves around the fruit and we learned that actually more light is not better and there's a sweet spot for the amount of light because of the heating and that just started this whole thing so then if you look at the average napa cab big rich bold ripe wine i think there that there is it's less jammy and pruney and and there is more freshness and more focus than there than than a similar producer if you go to like let's say 2003 when it was sort of the maximum of strip the leaves and get it super ripe that's why i feel pretty good about our tools viticulturally not counting the winery manipulations i'm just talking fundamentals so let's move to oregon there there was no graceful segue there <laughs> let's let's move to oregon and let's talk about pinot noir and we're going to touch on burgundy too because they got a whole mess of issues beyond pinot noir what do you see happening in oregon now we're dealing mainly with the bread and butter chardonnay and pinot to to a lesser extent chardonnay but a lot of pinot yeah i mean i think it's you know so you know uh the Pacific Northwest, including the Willamette Valley, like the climate's a bit different, but in some ways it's kind of the same deal. You know, relatively dry summers compared to the winters. You know, obviously a bit of a cooler climate, but again, that's another area that you know where uh, you know forest or fires, you know, wildfires are are an issue. You know, and are likely to be a continued issue into the future. Is at two degrees is Pinot Noir tenable? <sighs> Probably not. <laughs> 
Same for burgundy. Again, I'd say tenable in the sense that, yeah, you could grow it, but it will no longer be a climate that will be ideally suited for something like Pinot Noir. There's been, you know, some pretty sizable droughts in the Pacific Northwest. It was a brutal um, summer for rain this year in the Willamette Valley. Brutal. Yeah. And, you know, like a, a couple of years ago, they had another big summer drought and, and it was so hot that, you know, like a lot of farms, just get away from wine a little bit, a lot of farms like kind of stagger their crops so that as they're, you know, as the crops develop and as they finish harvesting one set, they move on to the next one. But it was so hot that everything kind of came in at once. And so, you know, there's, there's fruit rotting in the field, you know, because they just don't have the manpower to actually harvest everything because everything is coming in at the same time. Yeah. Instead of being nicely, instead of being staggered. And so, yeah, so, you know, Pacific Northwest is another place like that's going to have to deal with, with drought. Is it as simple as this, like, you know, little Tetris shift to where Baja, Mexico becomes Southern California, Southern California starts to become Northern California, Northern California starts to become Oregon, and it just kind of moves up that way? Are you seeing this, like, Northern progression with this? Yeah, I mean, so on a, on a basic level, I think... I think that's a good way to think about it. You know, this idea of just kind of like a northward progression of the kind of current regions and, and, and grapes. But obviously that's like a kind of broad brush view that's for sure. That's complicated by like, you're not going to be planting grapes everywhere in Oregon. Like you're going to be planting them in the Willamette Valley. But is it reasonable to assume that like Washington and Napa, perhaps part of Oregon will be very much suited to let's say, riper grapes like Cabernet, Syrah, etc. Yeah, I think so. Hi, Aaron. Yeah, I mean, again, this goes back to the part where I'm listening to that going, dude, come on, let's talk about this. The Willamette Valley, it's 120 miles long. It goes from south of Eugene up to Portland. It's east-west if you go into the Van Duzer Corridor, 60 miles across. I'm like, they, the grape growing is so, it's so new I'm not here debating climate change, first of all. I want to say that first and foremost. That's not my commentary. Um, I, I think that global warming affects the wine-growing areas that I am involved with in a different way than most people experience. People think of it as warming. I see it as erratic climate leading to warming. But I'll do the Burgundy, Oregon, California comparison. I mean, the most expensive Pinot Noirs in the world are grown in Burgundy. Has there been a summer where it's been over 100 degrees 30 times in Burgundy? I don't think so. It happens in Oregon all the time. Not to say that Oregon Pinot Noirs aren't awesome. Uh, you go down to Lompoc, a lot of times it doesn't break 75 degrees in the summer. Great Pinot Noirs grown there. So I mean, Pinot Noir does have the ability to arc across a relatively large climate. I mean, I don't disagree with Steve that I think Burgundy is on maybe more of a razor's edge. But then again, I'm like, uh, maybe it's not. I mean, maybe the French change the rules and say, we're going to allow for irrigation now. Yeah. Okay. Th- this you is... can already get your, you can get specialized permits for right, irrigation. Right, but I mean, when you have a vineyard that's not set up to be irrigated. Yeah, no, it's it, a huge cost. It, it's just, but I'm just saying, I mean... Can I challenge your, I mean, I guess I, as someone who sits around and looks at phenology data constantly, mm-hmm. um, I wonder how much you are not personally experiencing and internalizing that it's getting warmer because those are 
the slow changes that are kind of in some ways easier to deal with. Like you notice that, oh, we don't have spring frosts as often. That's great. That actually means bud burst early is super for me and I'm happy yeah. for bud burst early. And it sort of slowly is, is a bit easier to meld with and deal with. And what's really hard to deal with as a grower is these erratic changes in climate, the hail events, the extreme heat spikes that aren't in a regular way that allow you to adapt to. And that actually there's warming going on and maybe you're minorly adapting to that warming part of climate change, but you're struggling a lot more to adapt to the more erratic aspects of it. And those are the parts that have the biggest impact on, shoot, what am I going to do about this this year right now? Mm-hmm. I think that's it's definitely, definitely more, fair. It's fair, but it's definitely more of an issue in continental Europe than it is in the West Coast. When we talk about hail events, when we talk about frost, rot, all these things. They have much more violent weather than we yeah, do. They yeah, they have that erratic thing you're talking about. I lived and worked there for several <laughs> years. I mean, you saw Beaujolais in 2017. 2016 and 2017. I mean, wiped out by hail. I want to go back to the Willamette Valley and say, you know, again, that's like saying the Napa Valley, what Steve was saying earlier. I mean, are you talking about the Carneros or are you talking about Calistoga? Are you talking about south of Eugene or are you talking about west of Dallas? They're totally different spots from a grape grower standpoint. Yes, but I guess with the issue of climate change, they're all warming. They're all changing. How are you going to adapt each one to that change? So you start pushing westward into the Van Duzer Corridor. That's the logical progression. You're changing your, your growing techniques. You're moving within the defined area. I think you're going to see a lot more of that before you see wholesale abandonment of existing growing areas in favor of areas that have heretofore not seen grapes. I'm not saying you're not going to see that in two or three or four generations, but in the next, I wouldn't even say two, I would say in the next, this generation, next generation, you're just going to see kind of a, examining of the cooler microclimates of the existing areas. Easy for Californians and Oregonians to say because we have those spots, whereas in France it's pretty much, uh, they're pretty well defined in terms of where grapes are grown yeah, um, and pretty well planted out. And so when you say the Willamette Valley is not going to be able to grow Pinot Noir in 2050, I'm like, wrong. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I think it is wrong. I You're was wrong. looking at some um, of the predictions. <laughs> there's no debate in my mind that people will be growing Pinot Noir in the Willamette Valley in 2050, much like there is zero debate in my mind that people will be growing world-class Cabernet in the Napa Valley in 2050. Look at the volume of Cabernet planted in Napa versus today. It's just, it, it's an economic reality. If you win the lottery and go buy your $20 million plot in the Napa Valley, and say to yourself, well, what am I going to grow? Well, I really like Syrah and I like Zinfandel, but I'm going to be selling grapes, so I'm going to grow Cabernet. Always. economic. I mean, the, the economics of it go to that point. And why would you grow something that's economically disadvantageous given your land acquisition costs? And I guess that's where the economics work by climate change comes up, right? Because at some point you're managing, I mean, there's, if we take out, take out the winemaking and just to talk about growing grapes, mm -hmm. if you're putting so much money into growing grapes that are a variety that's not perfect for that region, maybe, that you could be growing another variety that would taste better with less work, in my mind, mm -hmm. then there's the economic razor edge, right? Where 
eventually you, this is the whole market question, do eventually consumers recognize that it doesn't taste the way maybe it could taste if it was a different variety or a different strategy and start stop buying Cabernet from Napa, right? Right now, yes, put your money in Cabernet and Napa. But eventually, does it become so expensive to micro-mist and to do a bunch of other different changes to make it work as it gets warmer? Again, if you're not ma- if you take winemaking out of it, you, you can't because if you if you're not making wine, you're still selling the grapes to someone who's making wine. So this goes back to Steve's point about globally, can you what are you selling it for? Where are you selling it? What's the demand? And as long as I've been in the Napa Valley, the demand keeps going up. People keep plowing under, you, know, you name the variety, and planting Cabernet. That's where I go back to the element of so many of the wines that are consumed in this country, people have no idea how they were made. And, you know, does that mean that the Cabernet that you really like was actually picked at the apex of ripeness? Well, yeah. I mean, if you're paying 250 bucks a bottle, it probably was. If you're paying 40 bucks a bottle, hmm, that was a pretty big arc that that wine was picked under, and it was probably massaged pretty heavily in the winery. So I go back to global warming and say, do I think that the marketing power of the Napa Valley to project that this is the best Cabernet grown in the United States is going to go away? No way. I think the question is, more erratic events and also sort of multiple issues. One is, do we get a couple years in a row that are bad? And what does that economically do to growers? I think that's one of my big questions is as you start to see multiple years in a row that are bad for some reason that you can't adapt to, what happens then? And the other question is knock-on effects. So everyone who's micro-misting, pests, (laughs) disease. We'll get into pests later. Well, I mean, so you think about like Southern Oregon in 2018, where large wineries just said you were not buying those grapes. I mean, economically speaking, you can't take too many of those occurrences. So then that to me, again, you loop back around to global warming and and climate change and fire and its interaction. And this goes back, I mean, to a point that Brian made earlier, it's our lack of connectivity as winery owners, grape growers, winemakers. I think Napa gets a little far away from that connectivity. I mean, Steve and I grow grapes and make wine for a living. We're actually a pretty, it's a small group of people that do that. There's a lot of people that own wineries. They're not driving tractors and dragging hoses around. You set up shop in the in an atypical part of the Willamette Valley. What was the thought there? I mean, I'm not the first person to buy land out in that part of the world. There's vineyards around where I am. I just think, I mean, the mass investment has gone on further east and further north. And I look at there and say, but I can buy land at $5,000 an acre and make exactly the kind of wine I want and be completely content. So why would I go over there and pay $185,000 or $200,000 an acre? I don't think the wine's any better. Do we think, though, that areas that are warmer right now, specifically with Pinot, maybe some warmer areas, the Dundee Hills, some of the warmer spots are really going to struggle within the next 30 or 40 years. If let's say there's a winemaker trying to make wine in the style that you guys are making wine. Pick earlier. 
think people just start pick I mean again if it's if we are talking about global warming do you worry if you're in the Dundee Hills which is one of the warmer spots I mean maybe if you're at the top and it's the soil's really thin maybe the maybe the preferred site shifts downward I mean that's I think about that in Burgundy maybe the you know if you you've got the slope and it's most eroded at the top and that's Premier Cru and you've got the mid slope Goldilocks section and that's Grand Cru and then you've got the village wines as you get into the heavier soils maybe the band of Grand Cru moves downward into soils that have more water holding capacity as the climate changes. I, I mean, I don't I know. That that, same thing. That's kind of the logic in my mind of, you know, that Grand Cru area is Grand Cru because of its both water holding capacity and, uh, you know, it's not a bog. And as things dry out and get hotter, that, that band moves. Okay, so that concludes part one of our Wine and Climate Change Roundtable. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, let us know about it by liking and or commenting and hit that subscribe button when you're done and I'll keep the eco train rolling. Part two, which dives deep into ways we can adapt to climate change, is on the way. Stay tuned.